Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Hello, winers and diners, and welcome to a very special episode of Whining About Hershey, where we're talking all things Captain America, Black Widow, Spider-Man. That's right. We're talking about the Civil War. I'm kidding. It's not that Civil War. We're talking about the American Civil War. So sorry to disappoint you, but you know (laughs) what podcast this is. You know what you signed up for and deal with it. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And we are joined by a very special guest. Would you like to introduce yourself? (laughs) Oh, hi. Hi. Um, I am Deanne Blanton. And Deanne is an author. She works at a vineyard. She's a historical badass in her own right, and she is going to be having a conversation with us about women in the Civil War because, contrary to popular belief, they were totally there and very active. So, uh, Deanne, first, could you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, so um, I was, am, have been a nerd, capital N, like my whole life, I am the biggest history geek. And my mom used to love to tell the stories. So I grew up in Tidewater, Virginia. We lived about 30 minutes from Williamsburg. We lived about 45 minutes from Virginia Beach. And on the weekends when my mom would ask us kids what we wanted to do, and my siblings wanted to go to the beach, I wanted to go to Williamsburg. And that sounds fun. Because I wanted to look at all the old houses and I wanted to look at the old furniture and I wanted to learn more about George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and the revolution. And my mom thought to herself, she was very supportive, but she told me later, she thought to herself, she's like, this kid is not normal. What (laughs) What child wants to go to Williamsburg every single weekend? Well, I was, I was that child. And (laughs) years later after college, my dreams came true where I actually worked at Williamsburg uh, for a summer and I got to wear the costume and like spend my days in, in those houses and talk about the founding fathers and revolution. And it was just the best. So not surprisingly, I majored in history in college. And then I didn't know what, well, I did know what I wanted to do. What I really wanted to do originally was work in museums uh, because I was very interested, not just in people's lives, but in people's things. Because I think the items from the past tell us stories about the normal people of the past. And one thing I never fully liked about my history classes, it was this whole top-down approach. You know, we mm-hmm. learned about about the famous men and the famous battles. And I was always interested in just what were normal people like? What were not famous people like? What were poor people like? And especially what were women like? Because seriously, I'm old enough that in my elementary and high school education, we didn't hear anything about women. We just didn't, it wasn't part of the curriculum. I'm praying that has changed. It it Um, hadn't when I was in school. I don't know if it has by now. (laughs) 
honestly, I think it really depends like state to state, district to district. I think there's more of a push to educate on women's history and just history of people that have been marginalized. So black mm-hmm. history, yep. Asian history, all of that. So, but, but you're absolutely right. There's a huge demographic in, that even includes us that have not been taught these very important stories. Exactly. And, and so, so let's see the rest of my life story. So I got out of grad school and I moved to Washington, DC because I'd always wanted to live in Washington. I had fallen in love with Washington as a little kid because I grew up, it was about a three hour trip. So that's where our school bus trips would go. And I, and I just wanted to be there because if you're a history nerd, Washington, D.C. is a great place because there's so much to explore. And my dream was to work in museums. Like I wanted to go work for the Smithsonian. Well, they weren't hiring and <laughs> I needed to eat. And my friend was going to kick me off her couch eventually. So. <laughs> you're like, I got to, you know, be out on my own at some point. Yeah. I've got to do something. And um, the National Archives was hiring history majors. And so I applied and they hired me and I went to work at the National Archives and went into, it's an internal training program they had then where they would teach you to be an archivist. And I remember thinking, you know, well, you know, I'll do this till I figure out what I want to be when I grow up. And then I was there for 32 years. And (laughs) what do you do being an archivist? Well, what I ended up being, and uh, so after I went through the training program and wasn't fired, I was. um, (laughs) I I relate to that. I'm sorry. I relate to that so hard because every time my boss calls me, every time my boss like calls me, I'm just like, oh crap, this is, this is it. This is it. Sinking feeling of I'm about to get fired. Yeah. Game over. What did I do? What did I do? Yeah. Yeah. So. I was assigned to what was then called the military reference branch. So the National Archives is the U.S. government's repository of all of our federal historical records. So it's a great fit for a nerd like me. And because the archives is so vast, the archivists at the archives, we have to specialize in certain time periods and in certain types of records because no one can possibly get even their mind wrapped around. (laughs) Yeah. So, So I was sent to what was called military reference. And at the time I was a little bummed because I, I thought military, you're why, why are you sending me there? And so this was 1989. I was a baby. I was a baby. And um, <laughs> and I was only one of two women in that department. And so a lot of the a lot of the citizens who would come to the archives just assumed I was the secretary. That was fun. Yeah, and then you tell them you're not and then you get that weird look. I've had jobs I, I would, like that. I would say, say no I, I'm an archivist can I help you and they and then 
you could tell they're trying to find a, a way to say, can I speak to a guy? You see their yeah. brain like rebooting. Like I have yeah, to completely like, 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 reassess my that? strategy. <laughs> um, so I, I was in military records and I, over time became an, a subject matter specialist in 19th century American military history. And I say 19th century, but it really um, was from the revolution up up to World War One, because World War One is really the start of the modern warfare mm-hmm. era, and and not only is is the history the military history very different, but the record keeping changed. So so an archivist needs to be needs to understand the subject area that they're archiving, but you also need to understand how people kept records and the intricacies of 19th century filing systems. And I mean, for people who like this stuff, it's great fun. For other people, it's like, what? <laughs> but um, so I became, I became a 19th century US Army specialist. And, and that was fun. It was, it was interesting. I learned more about war than I ever thought I would want to. But what I also discovered much to my delight was that using military records, you could still find out a lot about civilian populations because the army are incredible record keepers. They they documented everything. And honestly, we would have more records from the Civil War and earlier conflicts if it wasn't for the, the fact that buildings like to burn down, especially in the 19th century. Oh, yeah. And yeah, so so we don't, as as a nation, we have not a great collection of Revolutionary War records, for example, because buildings burn down and there goes the records. And, but given how much survives despite random fires, and then of course the, the problems just inherent in warfare. Yeah, say the war itself. Yeah. yeah um, I was amazed at how much still exists. And then as I as I went into those records and really started to learn what was in them, I was very, very excited about documentation of what, what broader 19th century life was like. Now, granted, this was through the eyes of the army, but still a lot of civilians come into contact with the army. And then I found a treasure trove of records relating to women and then I got really, really excited because I thought I had sort of been shoved into like a man's world. And it turns out that that women absolutely belong in military history, even if, you know, we're not so much into the ordinance, which I never was. I know some people are, you know, I would have researchers who were passionate about their canons and, and good for them because I'm passionate about, about you know, wide plank wood floors. So I guess <laughs> right. we need some of, some of every kind. Yeah. Right. So I, the, so the job I took that was just going to be my stopgap 
uh, turned into uh, a very fulfilling career, one that I enjoyed very much. And I, I retired from federal service in, on February 28, 2020, moved to a small town in the Shenandoah Valley just in time um, for the pandemic to hit. Yay. And, <laughs> and then last September, I decided I needed to get out of the house and I got a job at a vineyard. So, so I, I just cheers. want to assure you, yeah, yeah cheers. super cheers. But I want to assure you there is nothing wrong with your screen. I am literally turning green with envy because like I, that's like, so wor- amazing. working in the National Archives for that long. And then like, I'm going to retire and then work in a vineyard. I'm like, oh, my God, I think I have my like <laughs> life plan now. Like, I think I know what I want to do with my life. This is amazing. <laughs> but also working in a vineyard is fun. I bet it's fun. we uh. Believe it or not, we actually have a, a winery with a vineyard and everything just outside of uh, the city we live in. It's called Four Daughters, and that that blew my mind. I was like, no, nothing grows here. <laughs> it comes to life for maybe three months and then immediately dies for the next nine. Like, that's yeah. that's our weather cycle. <laughs> but they make it work. Yeah. I don't know how, but they do. They also do ciders now. Oh, the, not just wine yeah. anymore. Yeah, if you yeah. ever see uh, Loon Juice in your local uh, <laughs> yeah, liquor store. Minnesota only. But yeah, if you see Loon Juice, pick that stuff up. It's good shit. All right. So first of all, I just want to say I really loved what you said about how history is taught from the top down and being mm-hmm. more interested in like, well, what was it like for the normal people? Because when you think about it, that was the vast experience. George Washington is not an example for how everyone was living no. during the American Revolution. It's like right. if, we, if we were trying to describe how, you know, oh, what's it like to live in 2022? I had to check the year. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what year it is. I mean, we're, we're only like 14 days in. It's, it's fine. fine. You know, based on how <laughs> Bill Gates lives or Jeff Bezos or like, you know, the, the 1%, how or people with immense power and influence. Mm-hmm. And c- could you tell us a little bit more about the, this, like what it was like for civilians during the civil war and like what information you were able to find from those records? Um, well, it sucked basically. <laughs> I mean, the other that could be said of pretty much basic 19th century life. Um, war is, you know, Sherman said war is hell, and and he wasn't exaggerating. It was, it was awful because if your average, say, Victorian family, there were. Most people were still agrarian at that point. Most people were still on farms, both in the North and in the South, or they lived in small towns and they were sort of the merchant class. There weren't many big cities even then. And so your average sort of Civil War civilian was on a small farm, maybe could get into town in a day. And they send their son or their father off to war because 
more. And, and then they have to wait and wait for a letter or they have to read in a paper if they can go get the newspaper, if they can go into town to get the newspaper and read the casualty list in the newspaper. Oh my God. To see if someone they knew or someone they loved was dead. Because during the Civil War, there was no formal mechanism to notify family if their loved one was dead. The army did not, the war department did not notify families. So if you got a letter from the war front telling you your son was dead or your husband was dead or your brother was dead, it was because someone else in that unit knew them. Yep. That's and would write the letter. So it would be like your brother's friend Bob would write the letter home to let you know. And if there was no one to do that, you had to wait and and literally they would publish the casualty list in the newspaper and that's how you'd find out someone you loved was dead or missing. I can't, um, I mean, just the not knowing what's happening to your loved one, I just think is, is a special form of hell. Yeah. It would be for me, like as a mother, I would think about, if my son was at war and I didn't know if he was okay, mm-hmm. I didn't know if he was getting my letters. I didn't know if he was getting my care packages. It would just be hell on earth. Well, I and think. even, even in modern warfare, there's still that experience. A friend of mine served in Iraq and uh, there was, there was a, a mortar attack and his family heard about it and knew that there were casualties, but they didn't know who. So -hmm. they're just all sitting there stewing, like, is it my kid? Is it my kid? And at the same time, while you're praying, it's not yours. There's this duality of like, it's good. It has to be someone else's. Right, then. Like I'm a and terrible this, person because I'm I'm wishing someone else's child was dead mainly because I don't want it to be mine. Yeah, but I mean, right. and I mean, th- this is, you know, in the day and age where we have much faster communication. I can't imagine like opening the newspaper and scanning for my family member's name on a on a such an impersonal list right. that like everyone has access to. And then right. what a horrible responsibility to be like crap, my friend died and now I have to write to his family who I've never met, but I have their address. Like, what, what do I say? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a, it's an added brutality to what is already a brutal system. And And I just lost my train of thought. No, that's okay. Here's the thing. That is really heavy. And you're right. There is this, you know, we we talk about war and the casualties and the injuries and the physical toll, but the emotional toll for both soldiers and civilians is just immeasurable. It's immeasurable. And I think the Civil War, it, it only lasted four years, thankfully, mercifully. But it literally touched everyone. And, and, and there's also the never knowing part of, of civilian life, because if you go to any national cemetery, 
fully one third of Civil War soldiers that are buried in national cemeteries are unknown, a third. And so there were some families who, who never found out that all they know is that their son never came home or their right. brother never came home. They're missing. Or they're missing and they're missing forever. And you're just left and, to stew with what their final moments might have been like, what may have happened. Or are they still out there somewhere? Yeah. It's, yeah. Right. Are they still out there? Did they decide to just never come back? And, and so what would happen in a question I used to get a lot because at the archives, we would answer inquiries from anybody mostly. And 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 so people like a lot of genealogists would avail themselves of our records and it was such a common question of where's my ancestor buried so here's what they did so there'd be a big battle and a lot of men would die and the the people on the lowest rungs of the army or of society would then be charged with burying those bodies because the armies have already moved on the soldiers were just left they didn't take their dead with them they didn't stop what they were doing to bury. They would just bury them where they were, bury them where they fell. And at the time, they would try to put up like wooden markers or something with the names if they knew. And in fact, it didn't take soldiers long because there were no dog tags during the Civil War. Soldiers uh, before battle would write their name and their hometown on pieces of paper and stuff it in their clothes. Yeah. So if so, if they died, they could be identified. And so the people who were burying these bodies would do their best to, to leave, but they were like wooden markers they are very temporary. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't till after the war that the federal government decided that they had to do something about all these dead soldiers literally Just, everywhere. Yeah, scattered so, around. Yeah, buried across the country. <laughs> so that's when the national cemeteries were established. And, and wow, this is a job I would not have wanted because it's like 1867 and there's crews going around digging up the remains of soldiers who died in battle and moving them into the newly established national cemetery while and trying because, to maintain who they were if they knew right and because so many of those temporary markers were already gone or weathered fully a third and this is just union soldiers were buried as unknown soldiers oh oh snap i didn't know that I'm sorry if you keep seeing me look over there there's a spider crawling around but i'm just kind of <laughs> keeping an eye on it it's in that box. It, is, it keeps like the, the spider is also fascinated by this. I, you know, and you're absolutely right. I wouldn't want that job either because it's not like these people are in coffins. They're literally just buried in the ground in the uh, trench burials. Yeah. Ah, dig a trench, throw the bodies in. That's just officers, gruesome. Officers might get coffins like wooden coffins. I Which mean, if they are, had the time to build them. If they had the time. So this this is one of the really gross stories. Love it. So, the, so people 
who who were tasked with burying the dead initially. And now, and a lot of times, you know, battles can rage for two, three days. So it could be four or five days before they're burying these bodies. So they're not fresh. Right. They're out in the elements. If it's raining, if it's, oh, if it's hot. They're, yeah, bloated or just the the flies have already found them. Um, after the Battle of Gettysburg, there were stories of how the pigs got to the bodies. Oh, the no. Pigs yeah, are sorry. so creepy. They're <laughs> one of the only animals that eat bones. Yeah. I hate. Because, like, a lot of predators don't eat bones. They're, it's, it's, they're too tough. Pigs will eat bones. Pigs will eat anything. Yeah. Hey, pigs are uh, a special kind they're, of horror they're, show. Yeah, they're terrified. I eat bacon with yeah. a lot of anger. <laughs> You're like, this is payback. I'm going to get you before you get me, you son of a bitch. <laughs> so... So it's probably like the nastiest job in the world, right? Burying horrific five-day-old bodies. So what the grave diggers would do is they would search the bodies. They would rifle the bodies looking for valuables because literally that would be the only perk. Yeah, I was going to say, they're probably not really getting paid well, if at all, you know. Well, right. So they would rifle the bodies. They would search the bodies for valuables. They were also, they were looking for those pieces of paper so they could record as as accurately as possible who was there. But if they found a gold watch, well. So that's how it was discovered that there was a woman in Pickett's charge at Gettysburg because She's this soldier, it's a dead Confederate soldier and it's Union troops who are having to bury these dead Confederates and whoever was searching that body found boobs. And they're like, that is not a man. (laughs) That is not a man. And so she had been dressed as a man, passing herself off as a man serving in the Confederate army and she was killed at Gettysburg and we'll never know who she was because she's dead. And, but, so there's this formal bat, there's this formal, it's a burial report where they list, you know, how many they buried and, and based on the report where they were digging that day, that's how we know she was, almost assuredly in Pickett's charge. But it's an asterisk in the burial report that one of the Confederate soldiers was female. There, there so was they no just name? Like started and they were like female soldier. Yeah, there's, there was no name with the body. So we'll never know who she was. But we know she was there because they buried her. And, and actually made a specific footnote in the burial report to note that one of the bodies was female wow that's insane Isn't that cool well and you you hear yeah. about the stories of like women posing as men to serve in yeah. serve in the american civil war but that is super sad that this woman was doing that and we we don't know her name 
We don't know her story. And also her family probably has no idea what happened to her because she literally just disappeared. And now she's just buried somewhere and no one knows who she is. Well, she either disappeared. Or she followed her husband. Or she went with her husband. Because about... So of of the women soldiers that I was able to document, because I went way down that rabbit hole and wrote a book. <laughs> um, <laughs> so almost a third of the women that I could document went to war with a man, either a husband, a fiance, excuse me. <laughs> It's allergies, I swear. No, <laughs> it's okay. We're in different rooms. Yeah. It's fine. <laughs> different states. No, I, I've been coughing all this week and I don't even understand because it's too cold for my usual allergens to be bothering me. It's probably the cold. <laughs> maybe. Um, so about a third of the women who went off to war did go with somebody else and most often a husband, but there were, there were some brother-sister Mm. pairs that went off to war at least one woman went to war with her dad oh so our gettysburg woman she may have been there with a relation okay but she may not have and we just don't know who she was oh my god that's so sad (laughs) it's it's really the the not knowing kind of like we were talking about that's the worst part like no no we're like at the very beginning we're at the giant ornate tea at the beginning of the book, and then that's it. Like I right. want, I want the rest of it. Yeah, and so that's so. Yeah, war war was terrible, and then for 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 civilians who were in the path of the armies, which was mostly in the South, not completely, and in my home state of Virginia, it was. It was bad because the army and either army, it didn't matter if they were coming through and they were coming by your farm, Dude, they would they take just, your pig. That's what I was saying. Wouldn't they would, just take whatever they needed and stay, they sometimes they'd stay they in your house, like the generals they, they, and stuff. Right. And or you might wake up and there's half an army camped on your farm. And, and even if they're not trying to destroy everything you have, the fact that they're camped on your farm is going to destroy your crops. They're going to eat your pigs. They're going to take your horses because their horses are worn out. Cavalry was constantly, they would roll up to somebody's farm. They would leave their broken horses behind and they would take your good ones. <laughs> this is ridiculous. <laughs> Um, <laughs> we, we've been there. It's totally fine. I know, but I'm on a podcast and I'm coughing like a moron. So, so that was bad. You know, being, being farmers was hard, especially if you were anywhere in the war zone, you were looking at really hungry winners because the armies were taking your stuff mm-hmm. and, <clears throat> and in the Shenandoah Valley where I now live. I've been to many of the historic sites related to what's called the burning. And in uh, October of 1864, a Union 
Cavalry General Phil Sheridan, who was a dick, by the way. <laughs> and 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 not just because of this. It's later what after the Civil War, Sheridan was sent off to fight in the Indian Wars. And his his men called him Little Phil because he was short. And I bet he didn't like that. Probably had a Napoleon but complex. I, I was going to say. Napoleon wasn't short, but that's. I'm, Napoleon I, wasn't short. But, but, but that complex. Phil. I've so got a couple Phil. of chihuahuas and I'm imagining he was just the person. <laughs> the embodied version of, of a chihuahua where he's like, you want to fight? I will fuck you up. It's like, dude, I'm literally just like minding my own business. <laughs> chihuahuas are like the meanest dogs, right? <laughs> they are. I am so afraid of them. Like the guy I work with at the vineyard, he's got a pit bull. I am not afraid of the pit bull at no, all. They're so cute. Yep. The pit, he's a sweetie and he wears pajamas. Oh. He came, he came to the Christmas party in Christmas pajamas. Um but yeah, I would take a pit bull over a chihuahua. I uh, I used to have both a pit bull and chihuahuas in my house. And now I just have the chihuahuas. And I can confirm that. Like I go on walks and everyone wants to pet the chihuahuas. And but, they're just like, I will bite your hand off. And I'm like, you cannot touch my dogs. You cannot fucking come near my dogs. But then the pit bull... <laughs> who is super like open to love and attention. No one asked to pet him. And I'm like, but he's just a little baby and you can hold, it's, pick it's him up and hold him like though. a baby. Yeah. <laughs> and they're big blockheads. And yeah. Just, yeah. I love, well, I love dogs. I love cats. I have five cats. <gasps> I love because you. Because I become that woman <clears throat> in retirement. It's great. <laughs> they're all rescues. So that's my excuse. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Oh, okay. Sorry. Back, back to little Phil. Yep. So I bet. So the reason little Phil is just a jackass is after the civil war, he gets sent out West to murder indigenous people and the Indian wars. I mean, they're very complex and. But a lot of white people did a lot of terrible things. People did a lot of terrible things, but there's just something about Sheridan where I always got the feeling that he liked it. Mm. And, and, you know, that's, you know, Sherman, Sherman did some, some pretty hellish things to civilians, but you read his writings and you read about his life and you know, it bothered him. And you know, that, that, that weighed on him, even though Sherman and, and the March to the sea, he, he honestly believed that that was the fastest way to end the war was to take the war to civilians and to break the will of the Southern people. And, and, you know, one can make academic arguments about that. Sherman didn't like it. Mm -hmm. Sherman didn't revel in the destruction he was causing and, you know, given some of his mental health issues, which he may have had before the war. He probably did. I've always felt that that Sherman was probably bipolar. Mm. Now, I know it's really, really dangerous to try to diagnose people we've never met, but he seems to have that, that manicness to him and things that his friends would write. It just seems like deep, dark 
depression and that he could have benefited from medication had that been a thing. Yeah. Yeah. But Sheridan, who merrily um, torched the Shenandoah Valley, I think he liked it. And that's a big difference, you know, and but so what happened in the Shenandoah Valley and it's unfortunately unfortunate because a significant part of the population of the Shenandoah Valley are at the time were Mennonites and they were pacifists Mm -hmm. and they were not their sons were not in the Confederate Army and because that was against their faith but they had some of the best farms in the South were in the Shenandoah Valley. It was at the time, it was the breadbasket because wheat hadn't yet gone out to the Midwest to become the, the agricultural. <laughs> the Midwest. <tribe>. Yeah. <laughs> um, that it is now, it was still, you know, in Virginia, they were still growing wheat and, and other crops. And so General Sheridan and um, his boy Custer was in on this. Um, <laughs> Custer kind of got his later, but. Um, <laughs> yeah, a little. <laughs> so it was called the burning. That's what it's still referred to. And from Stanton, Virginia to um, Cedar Creek, the town of Strasburg, they burned every barn and every mill and in fact there's between those two towns you there's only one (coughs) pre-civil war mill still standing and this was an area where there would have been a mill every couple miles yeah oh that's terrible And, and so they burned they drove off any livestock that was there they torched the barns because this was october and the harvest was in and so they torched the barns they torched the mills they did not set fire to the houses that was the rule it's like you can starve them to death but you can't make them homeless well because we have to leave survivors to bask in the wake of our destruction and right yeah right they have to suffer story of what we just did. Oh, and what assholes. Yeah, well, that's terrible. It, well, it's terrible um, because while that may serve a military purpose, what it was doing was basically forcing civilians into starvation. Well, and you civilians know, people, that aren't fighting, that they're... You know, that they're not on one side of the conflict or the other. They're just existing. Soups, newts. Well, that's that's it. And when it was pointed out that they were indiscriminately torching, you know, there's there's a big plantation up near Strasbourg called Belgrove, which had it was huge. It was it was your your quintessential southern plantation with enslaved people. Unlike fine, burn Belgrove because because we all know that it's or do we all know this so it was a revelation to me that 
the Civil War was really no different than today and that it was the 1% of that time. It was the 1% of 1860 that, could, that, that drove, that shoved the rest of the nation into war. And that the majority of the people who suffered and died and starved to death were led down this path by the 1% of their day because like I'm a Virginian, I'm a Southerner and I have ancestors who fought in the Confederate army. And I look back at them and I look at their lives and I'm like, why did they do that? Like, why, why did my ancestors go fight in this war? They weren't slave owners. They were just sort of middling farmers. Why did they go fight a war for slave owners? And I still don't know. And all I can figure out is they just bought into the propaganda of the day. It's kind of like the Vietnam War. I mean, that ended up being a lot of drafting, but some people did choose to go over there because, you know, that there, there was a lot of propaganda. And I think that ends up happening as people just get so hyped and they get dragged into things and they're like, I'm going to go do this, you know, for my country or for whatever, even mm-hmm. though once you look into the real reasons behind why we're doing it, it has nothing to do with the country or whatever. Right. And, and it's, to, it is no benefit to them. I know? never then- thought about it that way. That that's so interesting because you're right. The, the super rich plantation owners with, you know, enslaved people, they're not the, they're not the majority. Well, and they're not the people that are going to go off and fight. Right. Mm-hmm. No, but they dragged the nation into war. Um, they dragged the whole nation into war. You know, the constant, you know, the, the Kansas-Nebraska Act and then the Missouri Compromise, it was all about pushing other states into being slave owning states Mm -hmm. when in fact it would still be at most at most 10 percent of the population of any southern state were slave owners and that's a high estimate which is maybe for you know south carolina or louisiana um and yet they dragged an entire nation into war and and then in, in just my little part of the world that I live in now, I go to one of my favorite historic sites is the Brethren and Mennonite Heritage Center. And they have a 19th century farm that they've restored. Aww. And and I love it because I can go there and I can walk around the farm and see what a 19th century farm was like. It's like Williamsburg, and... but a farm. <laughs> but it, right. Right. And I love it. And, and it's the story of these people and they were true pacifists. And because they were pacifists in Virginia, you know, they, they were subject to cruelties for being pacifists and not supporting the war effort. And then the Union Army comes and burns their barns and their mills. And they, they were they were innocents and right, like they're getting harassed by the confederates for not joining and then the, the mm-hmm. union is just a bunch of jackasses to them and it's like and and they're like but we we're not in the army our sons aren't in the army you know and they're like too bad you got a barn 
Jesus. And so, yeah, war is hell. And it's not just hell for the soldiers. I'm not sure that many civilians escaped without some form of trauma. Probably not. From, from that time period. I, I just can't imagine how they couldn't have. I mean, I, there's always the people who profit off of war. I mean, that's nothing new. But for your average person, it was just a really awful time. And I, and I just imagine that in the post-war years, like everybody's traumatized. Like everyone's walking around with some form of, of trauma. Mm-hmm. And, and I... And, and I figured out from studying history that, ev- that people don't change. They really don't change. You know, the words we use might change. The clothes we wear might change. We might understand more about science or technology. But at our core, people really don't change. And, and But because it was the Victorian era, they didn't write about their trauma or if they did, it was in that sort of flowery language and they tried to romanticize their pain. My melancholy is as deep as the ocean. (laughs) Right. And that was, that was as close as society would allow them to express probably all the pain they were feeling inside. And then and then there's all the poor soldiers who made it through the war who have got, who had to have had PTSD. Right. And they probably don't know what to do with it. Yeah. And they're probably told not to talk about it. And then they're just like. So, right. so basically there's a situation where an entire nation is traumatized and is forced to repress that trauma. Mm-hmm. Okay. Repress it. Or, or maybe talk about in whispers, and then we we hardly ever read about the poor soldiers who were who were addicted to morphine. Mm-hmm. Who they came back from the war morphine addicts, mm-hmm. and of course, there's no. I mean, we hardly have any sort of of uh, addiction treatment today. So of course, they didn't have any then, and. And so we have morphine addicted soldiers who, if they were lucky, had a sympathetic town or country doctor who would keep getting it for them. Mm-hmm. If not, they went home and had to do with withdrawals. They had to do with withdrawals. And then thankfully <sighs> then the patent medicines at least came around and then it, everybody could be high all the time. Yep. Wine, wine, cocaine spritzers. Yep. Yep. One of the things I love to look for every time I go to antique stores is trying to find the old patent medicine bottle. <laughs> <laughs> and and the real gold mine might be are the ones that still have the labels on them and yep. you read what's in it and it's like cocaine and i'm like damn so after the war everyone's traumatized but they can all go self-medicate <laughs> they can all go get high they can all go to the pharmacy or the country doctor and get high to sort of deal with their pain and i'm just kind of frankly amazed that anything was accomplished in the post-war years. I was I was gonna and say, like even nowadays, 
the idea of getting treatment for addiction or mental illness still there's still a lot of stigma surrounding it and I'm like yeah but this is why we need to talk about it because back in the day we could just drink like cocaine fueled wine and snake oil and do morphine about our problems and that's not a healthy way I'm gonna excuse myself for like two seconds I have to go to the bathroom but you guys keep talking okay um so could you talk, tell us a little bit more about like the roles of women in the Civil War and like the different roles that they had? Because obviously, you know, we, we know that some women dressed up as soldiers and served, but women also served in the C- Civil War in official capacities where they didn't have to disguise their gender. Right. So there were. Um, so starting on the home front, there were women who were suddenly cast into the jobs of well now you're in charge of the farm you're in charge of the store you're in charge of whatever the family business is because I'm going off to war sweetie and I think that you know family businesses family farms it's not like women had no idea how to run a farm because they've been living on the farm but now it's completely on their shoulders and so there's that and then there's um And then there's the women who were able to go off and become nurses. And I think I didn't understand for a long time how absolutely revolutionary that was. Because within the home, women were the nurses. Women in an era when most people never saw a hospital, were lucky to see a doctor and people died at home women were the primary caregivers to the ill, to their ill family members. And so women were brought up and were taught at a very young age, whatever home remedies were in vogue at the time, Mm -hmm. their grandma's um, recipes for however to do whatever. And so women were nurses and doctors within their own homes what was revolutionary about the women who then went into army hospitals is that women had never publicly or professionally been nurses prior to the civil war in military hospitals the nurses were men and they were usually men who had enlisted in what was called the hospital corps and they would and so military hospitals had male nurses but it's a war and they want their male nurses to pick up guns and go to the front. Mm-hmm. And it was with a great deal of reluctance that women were allowed right. into military hospitals. And of course, women knew how to nurse the sick. They've been doing it their whole life. And they learned very quickly, although I would argue that that women on farms probably already knew how to deal with uh, injuries oh, because probably. that's going to happen. Those pesky threshers. Exactly. <laughs> or, you know, cows. Pigs. You get kicked by a cow or something. You're Those breaking a bone. Fucking pigs are right. coming for you. <laughs> and and you know, I dare say they'd seen a case of tetanus before. Yeah. So but what was revolutionary was that women were now in this in what was considered a public role. And we all know with the cult of domesticity, women weren't supposed to be out in public, or if they were out in public, they weren't supposed to like it. 
and they definitely weren't supposed to be out in public without a protector. Right. But these women went into the hospitals and, and they nursed the sick and they nursed the wounded and, and they also nursed, there were so many epidemics during the war, because we all know that you put a bunch of people in, in very unsanitary conditions and everything's going to break out. And, well, and the fact that birth. a lot of northerners had never been south, so you know, the different bugs malaria. and the different diseases. Yep. 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 They they had no resistance to malaria. Farm boys um who may not have been exposed to as many germs as city boys, you know, so they're all falling ill with the measles and other childhood illnesses that they had escaped on the farms. And so there were there were women nurses who did die because they would catch the same awful illnesses. And so the real revolution for women was nursing. What what started as women just going out into the military hospitals, basically basically busting the door down, saying, We're here to help and you're gonna accept our help. After the Civil War, nursing became an acceptable profession for women. I I was going to say, nowadays, when you think of a nurse, the default image is a woman. Yeah. Right. That's, that is a direct result of the Civil War. Damn. Nursing schools opened after the Civil War and women could take their home training and then, and then you know, become formally trained and actually have a profession available to them. Because we all know for middle-class women during the 19th century, there, there, was, it, there wasn't a lot, there weren't many respectable jobs for middle-class women you in the be, 19th century. You could be century. a teacher, maybe. You could be, you could be Until you got married. Right. Then you had you to start be, pumping out kids. <laughs> You could be a governess to somebody's bratty mm-hmm. kids. Um, undertaking, which I didn't know. It was acceptable for women to be undertakers. That's so That's cool. R- I didn't know that. That just seems so weird. The, right? I, it, it was usually women taking over what had been a family business, but it was considered an acceptable occupation to uh. be an undertaker. I think it's it's part of that idea that women, women comfort and nurture. And so in your time of need to have a woman, you know, there to, and of course she, it's not like she had to go dig the grave. She would <laughs> Well, and like, there's not a ton of interaction, you know what I mean? Like, because it's it was, a very private, it's a very private thing. thing. Like, you know, you're not like out cavorting with a bunch of other men. Like you're helping a family where someone died you know like yeah so that needing a chaperone really isn't a thing in that type of profession what's the dead guy gonna cop a feel calm down (laughs) (laughs) and undertakers were really only a thing in cities because if you lived in a small town or on the farm you might get buried on the farm or in a small town you're just getting buried in the churchyard yeah, so, so you, you mm-hmm. call the priest and you probably dig the hole yourself 
Right. And, and the local carpenter will make your coffin for you. Or if you're handy, you might make it yourself. And since your uncle's been dying for three months, the coffin might already be made. Right. Because, you know, death surrounded these people. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, we isolate ourselves from death. That wasn't the case. It, death was very up close and personal, even before war. Um, the one thing that I think that doesn't get a lot of attention is the lives of working class women in the Civil War and in the 19th century. You know, we always hear what I call about the diary writing class. It's women who had the education and the leisure to sit every night and write about the one percent of the women about their melancholy that was as deep as the ocean yeah right and (laughs) and you know I'm happy for them that they that they could that they could keep a diary because it is a glimpse into their world but it's only a very narrow glimpse and for so long it it seemed that in women's history it was our only glimpse was into the letter Mm -hmm. writing class and I'm like, well, most women didn't have time to write diaries, either because they had 13 kids or because they were poor or they were immigrant women struggling to learn English or they were working in a mill for 12 hours a day, six days a week. And I and I still wish there were more scholarship about the lives of those women. You know, because one thing I realized when I was researching the women who fought as men is they were all coming from the working class. They were coming from the pioneers. They were mm-hmm. coming from immigrants. It wasn't your diary writers who were going to pretend to be men and go off to war. Because like for men, and I think this is still true today, the army is a step up for a lot of people. You know, during the Civil War, the Union Army was paying 13 a month, which I think was pretty good wages. And for a woman who worked in the mill for maybe $4 a month, and she's like, wait a minute, if I pretend to be a dude, I can go in the Army and get 13 a month, and the work's probably not that much harder. Right. Well, and then you get a pension and... I mean, if you can convince them to give you one once they find out you're a woman. If they find out. Right. Yeah. And and the worst thing that can happen is I'll get killed, but you can also get killed in the mill because there's so dangerous. Yeah. There weren't any safety regulations in place. OSHA was a long way away. (laughs) Well, it it wasn't OSHA. It was, oh, shit. Yeah, right. (laughs) And it's interesting because you hear like in other wars, you know, like in World War One and World War Two, you hear about what happened to the working class women, you know, because you hear about like, oh, the men, the men all left. So the women had to step up. But you don't hear about that with the Civil War. Like what happened to all those women that. You know, like, obviously they had to step up, you know, women ended up running farms and stuff. But it's interesting now that you like mention that I'm like, yeah, you never hear about that. Like we you have, hear about it in every other war. We have Rosie, no one talks about it. We have in, Rosie the Riveter, but we don't have like Molly the mill worker who's like, I'm gonna do the mill thing. <laughs> right. And, you, and the women who went to work in the munitions factories mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and at least three of those munition factories blew up yeah. and killed not just grown women but little girls 
like when the Washington Arsenal um, blew up, I think the youngest girl killed was 12. Yeah, I think Jesus so. Jesus Christ. It was like 12 and 14-year-old girls going to work every day making cartridges because it's a war and then it blows up and you've just killed children. Um, I mean, we were how- probably sending the 12 and 14-year-old boys to war, though, so. Uh, well. Balance. Yeah. <laughs> Meaning, meaning we're, you know, like there, there's when, children when, on both sides. When we talk about gender equality, we're talking about victimizing children of all genders. <laughs> right. Well, it, you know, in the mines, you know, they, they sent little boys down into the mines because they could send the little boys into to places the, the men couldn't fit, that the grown men couldn't reach. So and, bad. And, uh, that just, six year old boys being sent down into mines. It's, I terrible. Some of my my history geek friends are always like, "Oh, I was born in the wrong century. I should have been born back then." And I'm like, "Why?" No. Every time someone what? like whenever they ask me that, I'm like, "The only way I would go back in time is if it was a day trip where I knew I was coming back." Yeah. And, and that I could just you- be like invisible. Like because being right. a woman in any other century in any other time would be terrible. Yeah. And especially and if you're the, lower class or a woman of color or. Well, like if you're just popping up out oh of nowhere, no one's going to know who you are. Like you're not going to be able to do anything. Well, for one thing, you would smell better than everybody else. It's true. And because like, I don't want to have to go back in time. I don't want to have to wear those clothes. I mean, the corsets, there's a lot of mythology around corsets. They weren't quite as miserable as, as they're made out. And tight lacing is wasn't really that common but the styles were just I don't know I don't like like the Victorian clothing it's kind of ugly and like some of them were so many layers yeah like there was times where people were wearing like four or five skirts and I'm like that's just asinine like one one is fine you know why women couldn't show off their ankles because then that would have led to everyone seeing how powerful their calves were because and women would have been threatening because every day is leg day when you have to wear 80 layers of petticoats and 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 they didn't have air conditioning it's like how are you wearing that many clothes in the summer? Just, oh my God. Well, like in Victorian era, like the sleeves were always three fourths or longer. Yeah. And I'm like, think of the poor, like Southern women in the summer. I'm like, how did you not all just die of heat stroke? I do declare I am, I have the vapors. (laughs) Yeah, of course they had the vapors. They had too much clothes on. (laughs) You know, a fun thing when I worked in Williamsburg, because that was 18th century, that was pre-revolution. And the colonials were much smarter about clothing. So in and I was working at Williamsburg in the summer, I literally had two layers on and they were cotton. And like, I didn't have pantaloons or anything and it was period appropriate. And so many guests would be like, I can see your ankles. And I'm like, yeah, because they're back in the day, there would have been three feet of muck in the street and no woman is going to have skirts that go down to the ground. So of course you can see my ankles because 
Yeah. I got to walk across horse crap. <laughs> well, but also, you know, well, of course, you know, 18th century women, you know, you could see most of their boobs, but like women in eight in 1750 Virginia would have worn so many fewer clothes than women in um, 1850 Virginia and and I'm like when did they get dumb about the weather apparently <laughs> when they were like I want to you know we're we want independence from England but we also want to dress like them and they wear all these clothes so we're right. gonna do that I just yeah. I just keep thinking back to like the early 2000s when I wore bell-bottom jeans and like you know they drag on the ground and they sop up the 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 water <laughs> when it rains and they get heavy. I'm like, can you imagine having all those layers and then that it's just like soaking up water and like it's and getting heavier. Water. So it makes sense that they wouldn't want them dragging yeah. on the ground. Well, that's I was reading I think in Victorian England there were there were poor people who made a living like running around London and they would throw down boards or tarps or even their own bodies yeah, for women to walk over for women to walk over. So they didn't get their skirts wet. Is that where and that I comes thought, from? <laughs> what a weird thought, job. What an awful way to have to make a living is chasing after rich women yeah. and well, it's because people hoping- would literally just throw their shit into the street. Gardaloo! <laughs> because, yeah, public sewers are a good thing. And, yeah, so you couldn't pay me to go back and live in mm-hmm. Victorian times. It's, unless I could be, like, the fly on the wall. Yeah. yeah. Far, and and, and that sure, you're coming back. <laughs> and make sure that I have my tetanus shot. <laughs> I'm going to wear my mask the whole time. I'm going to give everyone in Victorian England COVID and vastly alter the course of history. Right. <laughs> That's how the Black Plague started. Someone it was actually me and it was actually COVID. <laughs> so talking about like fashions and stuff and yeah. how meticulous, you know, record keeping was in the army. How, how do you think or how did women successfully disguise themselves as men during the Civil War? Because the first way, and it seems so alien to us today, nobody knew what women's bodies looked like in pants. That's true. So today, if we, today, so clothing was so incredibly gendered. Like we think clothing's gendered now. It was wild back then. In fact, there were when um when the when Amelia Bloomer started wearing mm-hmm. her little harem outfit, you know, and people lost their minds. It was it was women wore dresses. Yeah. Period. I mean, for a long time women had to have a permit to wear pants. I love pants permit. <laughs> I love the idea that yeah, women were so consistently wore dresses and skirts that you couldn't a woman would put on pants and they'd be like, "Whoa! Who are you? Are you Dan?" Like <laughs> you can't and, tell. Doesn't it seem wild? And so women literally the act of cutting their hair because women 
Only only had long hair. The only time women were really allowed to cut their hair is when they were sick. So like if you're laying in bed for four months with scarlet fever, um, whoever was caring for you would cut all your hair off because there's no way they could take care of your hair. Right. Hey, that's going to grow back if you're stuck there for four months. Right. So literally, if you cut your hair off, like you gave yourself a dude haircut and you put on your brother's clothes, no one at just the brief glance that we just give people Mm -hmm. that was 95 percent of passing for a man were shirts literally were the shirts and jackets just baggy enough that it didn't matter well especially the army uniforms you know they're they're being cut and you got the closest size that fit you. It was kind of a and okay. so most soldiers didn't like you see reenactors today, and their uniforms are so nice. Well, most soldiers, unless like their mom was making their uniform, it wasn't really tailored to their body. And so, a woman, I mean, unless she was real, you know, really racked up, um, you could just yeah, you tape it and then put a you shirt tape on. It up. You put your big bulky jacket on that doesn't fit anybody and um so yeah it it was shockingly easy because because people literally didn't have a frame of reference to women in pants I'm just imagining a male soldier seeing a female soldier in disguise and being like your pecs are just popping. <laughs> like, what do you, what do you like, eat? Yeah, what, what do you eat? What's your weight routine? Because, man, you got, like, really nice pecs. And she's just like, thanks. Yeah. I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah like, thank you. It was like we were just talking about, oh God, now I can't remember her name, but it was a woman I covered. And, yeah, like, one of the ways she got away with being a man is that, you know, like, they would be like, oh, why aren't you growing facial hair as we travel around? And she's like, I just get up before everyone and shave. And they were just like, all right. <laughs> no questions. Well, it was, I mean, soldiers, I mean, everybody smelled bad back then. Soldiers smelled extra bad. Oh God, I can imagine. Because... It's like they they didn't really have changes of clothes very often. They would wear literally the same clothes till they were falling off of them. And at night, if you're sleeping outside, you're not taking your clothes off to go to bed. You're putting all your extra clothes on to stay warm. And so it's not like they were getting naked in front of each other very often. Mm-hmm. And Well, there's enough people in an army that, you know finding somewhere to go to the bathroom like no one's gonna notice if you're gone for like five minutes because there's enough people around that it doesn't matter exactly it women were more likely to get found out if they were suddenly in a confined space like a prisoner of war camp or a hospital say if they got injured Mm -hmm. but when they're when they're out in the field there's a lot of latitude for privacy when it's needed and it was really only when women were suddenly stuck somewhere that it that they were in much more danger of someone finding out. Do you have a favorite woman that went to the Civil War uh, from all your research? I used to say 
that Albert Cashier was my favorite, but now I'm not sure if I should even consider Albert Cashier a woman soldier because Albert Cashier was born um, assigned female at birth and was given the name Jenny Hodgers. And at some point, and, and Albert was born in Ireland. And at some point, uh, he immigrated to the US. We don't know exactly when, but Jenny Hodgers was born in Ireland. Albert Cashier shows up in the US. And we don't know, we don't know any details about when the immigration took place, if he was alone or with friends or with family. But what we do know is that in 1860, Albert Cashier is in Illinois. And from 1860, literally till the day he died, almost, he lived his life as a man. And I used to think that Jenny Hodgers became Albert Cashier because as an illiterate Irish immigrant in a new country, um, <coughs> her options would be greater if she passed herself off as a man. And it was not, there, there were a number of women passing themselves off as men in this time period, not just to go to war, but to get a better paying job, to mm -hmm. escape abusive relationships, to start their life over. The vast majority of those women at some point went back to a female identity. Mm -hmm. Albert Cashier never did. And what I used to think was that Albert Cashier elected to live his entire life as a man because he almost reached a point of no return. And to return to living as a woman, Albert would have lost everything, would have lost friends, would have lost employment. And that's what I used to think. And now I wonder, because Albert Cashier was consistently a man and lived a male identity for his entire adult life. I now wonder if Albert was transgender. And there's no way to know. Right. Well, you can't ask him and he didn't even have that vocabulary <laughs> to describe himself. By the time um, the world found out that Albert Cashier was a biological female, Albert Cashier had dementia. So, oh. yeah. And so anything Albert said towards the end of his life can't be regarded. And, and it was a different story told to a different person. Mm -hmm. And so we can't ask Albert. And, and, you know, when, when, when we wrote the book, we just, put Albert into the same mold as other women who passed as men and assumed it was for the same reasons, um, which were often economic, economic and personal security. 
but now I'm not so sure because Albert never went back to that female identity. And like I said, I may not have been wrong when I assumed it was because to Albert would have lost his economic possibility. He would have lost his stand in the community. He would have lost his friends. He would have lost everything. Mm -hmm. And he said, oh yeah, by the way, I'm a girl. Um, but given now, you know, what did Maya Angelou say? When you know better, you do better. And, and when I was initially doing the research on women soldiers, people, transgender people just weren't on my radar. I didn't, I didn't understand. I, I wasn't looking for that. And so I think with Albert, it's worth wondering. But then I think what is probably to me most important about Albert Keshier is that Albert was incredibly brave because Albert lived the life that he chose to live. Albert basically said, I don't care what society expects of me. This is the life I want to live. So Albert is probably one of my favorite people from the 19th century, just because of the incredible personal bravery it took to say, this is the life I want to live. And I don't even think it matters why that was the life that he chose to live. I think that's really wonderful that you're willing to kind of adjust your interpretation based on new information and new understanding. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. also your point of it doesn't really matter if Albert was trans or if, like you said, he just reached a point of no return. The fact that this person was willing to buck all social norms at great risk to themselves, physically, financially, socially, in every way, shape or form. And they're like, ah, no, this is what I want to do. And then doing it is absolutely incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't, you never saw that back then. No. Were, I don't know if it was too afraid or what, but. Well, you know. it wasn't exactly a super friendly time to no. jump out of the box. Um, so we're kind of. <laughs> <laughs> so we're kind of coming close to our time, but could you tell us a bit more about your book and where people can find it? Okay. So the book is. Um, it's They Fought Like Demons, uh, Women Soldiers in the Civil War, and my co-author was Lauren M. Cook, and it was published in 2002 um, by Louisiana University Press, and then came out in paperback um, a year later, and it's still in print. Yay! <laughs> Yay! And uh, so I get these little royalty checks every year now um which is fun and I usually just go to the bar with them <laughs> hey why not you might be my favorite person right? <laughs> well, when, the, when the book was new you know now the royalty they're they're kind of hilarious it's like I've had bar tabs bigger than this royalty check but that's not why I wrote it I wrote it because it I was compelled I just felt compelled to write it but it is still in print um, presumably anywhere you buy books. Um, and, and so I'm really proud that, that it's still around and 
Um, and this was fun. This y'all are so much fun. To <laughs> oh, I'm to. so glad you said that. I'm all, like, I, every time we interview someone, I'm like, I'm, I'm going to see the moment on their face so when they realize like, Why am I where here? they're like, what the fuck did I sign up for? Who are these idiots? <laughs> I have. No, I've listened to your podcast and I'm like, I like these women. Y'all are cool. <laughs> and, and, you know, like when I do Zoom lectures, I can't show my glass of wine, but I, <laughs> I can you know, hear I can myself with y'all. So this was great fun. And I'm so honored that you wanted to talk to me. You're, I have one more yeah. thing. You're also a board member for the Society for Women in the Civil War, correct? I am. So do you want to talk am. a little bit about that? Okay. So, um, the Society for Women and the Civil War, we're a membership organization and I serve on the board. And we started back in the mid 1990s because we were really mad that it, every Civil War conference had no panels about women or it was the same old thing mm -hmm. or there would be like the token girl lecture. And so a bunch of us decided that we were going to throw our own conference and have a conference just about women in the Civil War. And that's how it started. And then because conferences cost money, um, we became a membership organization. So other individuals who are interested in 19th century women's history, uh, join us we do we throw an annual conference where we learn about all the badass women in history um mostly civil war but we also venture into both antebellum and reconstruction time periods because there's just so many good stories to tell and we offer a forum for for people to present their research and and we do field trips of my favorite field trip is we did a conference in Arlington, Virginia. And so our field trip was to Arlington National Cemetery. And we were taking the little bus up to the Lee Mansion. And the tour guide kept referring to it as Robert E. Lee's house. And everyone on the bus, all of us society ladies, we kept screaming out, it's Mary Lee's house. Yes! <laughs> he never owned the house. Right. It was hers. It was her house. Her dad left it to her. Yep. And it drives me insane that everyone refers to it as Robert E. Lee's house. And it was just so much fun to be in a group of women who would scream at the tour guide, it's Mary's house. And he's probably and he just like, uh, I hope he, I hope that was a forever correction. And every time the tour guys like, so this is Mary Lee's house. And I know that because a bus full of women screamed at me and I learned my Multiple lesson. Times. <laughs> it's just but this chorus of, I'm actually, <laughs> we did have to scream at him multiple times. Cause you could tell he was just doing his script. So then we yelled and then like the next time he mentioned General Lee's house, we had to scream at him again. And and the who knows what the bus driver thought, but the bus driver was probably laughing. <laughs> I I just, if if y'all 
Um, anyone who is interested in this time period and interested in women's history, um, give us a try. And we, we have a monthly newsletter, which includes a biography of our woman of the month. Um, and so if you're interested in learning more about us, uh, go to our website, which is swcw.org. And we'll include that link in the episode description. Thank you. And then can our listeners find you on the social medias anywhere? Um, my Twitter game is really lame. That's okay. <laughs> so is ours. <laughs> I'm a bad so millennial. I, I'm terrible at Twitter. I, I don't tweet because it makes me anxious because I can't, I get confused about I'm following someone and then they at me and it, and it makes me nervous. Um, I'm on Facebook which is the lamest social media theory. I'm actually yeah, way least, better at Facebook. At than least Twitter. you weren't like, I'm on MySpace. <laughs> oh my God. I'm pretty sure my MySpace profile probably still exists in the world. I, I was going to say all of our MySpace profiles are frozen in time and they're going to be dug up by some like cyber archaeologist who's going to be, be like, what the fuck was with everyone in those emo haircuts? <laughs> See, I'm too old to have even had a MySpace. Like I'm, I'm like your typical middle-aged white lady now that I'm on Facebook because that's like all I can figure out. Right. And it's my, how you keep in contact with your family. Yep. Well, it is how I get to see pictures of my nieces and nephews um, yep. when they bother to post know, children. Right? Um, but yeah, my son, my son was like, mom, you gotta get off Facebook. And I said, but what, where do I go? And, and he wants me to, anyway. Instagram? I was going to say, I, I enjoy a good Instagram. Because it's just photos. Yeah. It's less pressure. Yeah. It's, it's a I little less intimidating. I just post pictures of my dogs. <laughs> Dogstagram. I post pictures yeah. of my five cats. Yeah, there hashtag, you go. Hashtag catstagram. It's real. It's out there. <laughs> it is. Also. All right, um, convince me. I'm going to try to start at Instagram. Okay. And if you want to follow us on Instagram, you we can follow, follow us at W A H under wait W at W A H pod. Also, we uh, are politely demanding pictures of your cats. We will return with pictures of our dogs and my cats because quid pro quo. It's a thing. And thank you. Thank you so much for joining so us. Much fun. It is always such an incredible experience. Like, I mean, we're just a couple of friends who are like, I want to know more about women's history. So let's, you know, Google some ladies every week and tell each other the stories. So when we get the opportunity to talk to people, especially women who are like really doing the damn thing. It's so exciting. It's incredible. And here are huge fans. And hearing about oh, you, you in the archives where there's like one other woman working with the military archives and everyone's like, oh, you're not the secretary? <laughs> Would it still man? be rude if I asked you to go get right. me some coffee and make me a sandwich? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, th th oh, that is so funny. wonderful. And again, uh, that is They Fought Like Demons. You can get that anywhere you get books. Always, you know, support independent, yeah. you know, small booksellers if you can. Yeah. But, you know. Yeah. I know it's on my reading list. Yes. <laughs> Eventually oh, when I read again, when I have a social life, when I graduate. Yeah, I was going to say, Kelly's getting her master's uh, in mind reading right now. So, psychology. <laughs> well, good for you. 
Thank you. Yay. Yeah, Emily calls it mind reading. And I'm like, don't I, say that. I can't do that. I, I do because I'm basically like, she's going to become Sherlock where she like looks at someone and by the littlest detail, she's like, I know where you were born and I know your trauma and I know what your favorite food is and I know how to mess with you. Like that is, that's my perception of what Kelly will become. Well, I'm so glad that you didn't tell me at the beginning that you're a psychologist or going to be a psychologist because I would have sat here going, okay, I gotta watch my posture. I gotta watch my. It's okay. I'm my, not. I'm not like certified yet, so it's fine. I don't know all the tricks. Yeah. Well, I'm certified. <laughs> I mean, in that way, I'm that. But <laughs> I'm certifiable. Yeah. That's what I meant. Yeah. But it's been it's been just lovely to talk to y'all. And again, thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, thank yeah, you thank so you much for coming. for coming on. This is amazing. And uh, to our patrons, you're going to get the full video of this. So you're going to get to see Deanne's wine glass. You're going to get to see a very fancy wine our glass. looks of disgust at like having to bury five-day-old bloated bodies so and sexism and all that. Uh, everyone else, you are getting the audio. Uh, like I said, pick up. Uh, pick up the book, like us on Facebook at Whiny About Her Street, Instagram at WAH Pod, Twitter at WAH, oh my gosh, WAH <laughs> underscore pod. Our website is whiningaboutherstory.com and our email is whiningaboutherstory at gmail.com where we would love to hear from you. And our patrons can see some of our sweet merch in my linguistic butchery sweatshirt because yeah, we don't know how any. to pronounce words. So I decided to make a sweatshirt. So. It's like I'm making fun of my inability to pronounce things before anyone else can. Yep. <laughs> it's a great conversation piece. All right. Well, thank you again so much for joining us. This is wonderful. We may have to have you on again if you're willing. That would be yeah. amazing. I just like want to talk you to want, you forever. If, if you're like, if you want to come on one time and like cover one of the women from your book or just cover a favorite woman, we would love to have you on. Yes. Again. I would love to come back because literally I will talk until someone like makes me shut up <laughs> like, stop no um, kidding no seriously well you know how to find me so whenever you want me to come back let me know yeah awesome we'll plan for something well I thank you back. thank you so much and uh i'm emily i'm kelly and you're I'm <laughs> and have an empowered day bye, bye. <laughs> recording stopped oh thank you